Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 18. If there's an organizing theme here, it would seem to be the contrast between the speech of fools and the speech of the wise. Several commentators use that, or something like that, as the heading for verses 1 to 21. And then starting at verse 22, the focus shifts toward wisdom in the domestic sphere. Again, you're free to decide how much stock you want to put in these proposed arrangements. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Bruce Walke puts all of verses 1 to 11 under the heading, The Fool's Antisocial Speech versus The Defense of the Righteous. Closed quote. Certainly there's an antisocial element to verse 1. An antisocial person alienates himself by pursuing selfish ends. He rejects all counsel and wisdom and just does his own thing. Now, if you were already leaning in that direction, the recent pandemic may have given you a further shove. It certainly forced people deeper into isolation and further down the rabbit hole of the internet, where people go to find confirmation for all their antisocial opinions. If that was you, come back to the light. Rejoin community. There's no wisdom in living alone in a cave. You were made for people. You need them, and they need you. You are a social animal. Understanding that is an aspect of wisdom. Verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. COVID put pressure on this tendency as well, didn't it? Why go to medical school when you can do a Google search? Many of us thought we were doing research when in fact we were engaging in confirmation bias. Many of us thought we were spreading truth when in fact we were only expressing our opinion. Real knowledge and real expertise takes more than an internet connection. It takes years of discipline, commitment, and hard work. There are no shortcuts, and the book of Proverbs has very little good to say about those who believe there are. Verse 3. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor, comes disgrace. When a person acts wickedly, presumably in the ways just discussed, he or she invites the contempt of the community. Now, in a fallen world like ours, obviously we're going to need to exercise some discernment here. Sometimes the community is going to hate us for doing what is right. So to use this verse correctly, we have to ask, is my community showing me contempt because I've done something right that they, in their fallen state, can no longer recognize? Or is my community showing me contempt because I have acted in antisocial, self-serving, ignorant ways? It's very important to reflect on these things. Some Christians today will point to the contempt of their community as proof of their fidelity and courage. And that may be, but it may also be that they have acted foolishly, selfishly, 
and antisocially. You have to be really sure that you're right. You have to have some rock-solid biblical truths undergirding your position before you would want to point to the contempt of your community as proof of your courage and uprightness. Because as a general rule, communities show contempt to people who have acted dishonorably. The wise father is pointing out here that the attitude of the community can be consulted as a barometer for the wisdom of our behavior. That is generally true. Remember, the Apostle Paul, when speaking about the qualifications for an elder, said he must be well thought of by outsiders. That's 1 Timothy 3.7. So the general expectation in the New Testament is that Christians will be well thought of by others, with the recognized exception that sometimes we will be hated and rejected as we follow Christ. So we have a general rule and we have the recognition of possible exceptions to the general rule. And therefore, we need to act with discernment. Verse 4, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. There's some disagreement as to how to best translate this proverb. The NRSV, for example, renders it, the words of the mouth are deep waters, but the fountain of wisdom is a rushing stream. So basically the discussion here is whether to understand these colons as complementary or contrasting. Now on balance, I think the complementary understanding is to be preferred. Alan P. Ross represents that viewpoint. He says here, the words of the wise are an inexhaustible supply of blessing and counsel, closed quote. The wise father here is encouraging his son to seek out wisdom and reliable teachers as opposed to imbibing the counsel of fools. Verse 5. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. This proverb is similar in sentiment to Proverbs 16.10, 17.15, and 17.26. These proverbs together provide a reminder that wisdom is in no way contrary to law, but rather overlaps with it, expands upon it, and suggests ways to honor it in all our speech and behavior. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Quote. Obviously, this proverb is in perfect harmony with that law. Verse 6. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. We've probably all witnessed foolish people talking their way into a beating. Some people just don't know when to shut up. Some people don't consider carefully who they're speaking to. When you see people like that beginning to go off, it's not a bad idea to step back. Well, I remember when I was a teenager playing hockey, there was a young guy on our team, and he was very talented, but he was also very mouthy. And every time we lost, he would just go off in the dressing room. He'd tell us all what we did wrong. He'd point out everybody and everybody's mistakes, and he'd lay the blame. And of course, wonder of wonders, he was never to blame. Well, anyway, after one game uh, that we had lost uh, pretty spectacularly, he was going off, and all of a sudden, this big defenseman on our team stood up, walked across the dressing room, and just started pounding on this guy. We all just sat there. The coaches had left the room, and it went on for some time. Now, whether that was right or wrong, I'm just saying it was a perfect illustration of this proverb. 
A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. Verse 7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Well, this verse obviously complements verse 6 and further develops the theme. Some people can't help themselves. Their mouth is their own worst enemy. Verse 8, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. In English, we sometimes refer to gossip as juicy, as in Susan shared with me a juicy bit of gossip. And the idea is that it is delicious in a sense to consume words of gossip. We all like hearing a juicy tidbit about this person or that person. However, as pleasurable as it may be to partake in gossip, we need to remember that everything we hear becomes a part of us. It will affect how we view others. It will affect our perception of people in general, and it will affect the quality and discernment of our own souls. The comparison to food is entirely appropriate. Candy is fun to eat, but you have to be aware that you are negatively affecting your physical health whenever you choose to consume it. Well, same goes for gossip. Verse 9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. This proverb is equating laziness with destructiveness. It's saying that being a lazy person is just as bad as being a destructive person. You might think that you're engaged in the lesser evil, but you're not. You're undermining society. If someone is paying you an hourly wage while you're working at half speed, then you're robbing your employer, not to mention the impact that you're going to have on the price of goods, which affects the consumer. So don't fool yourself into thinking that your behavior is benign. It is not. The lazy person is brother to him who destroys. Verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Now, we've talked before about how one of the main themes in Proverbs is stability. The name of God generally refers to his attributes. So we might paraphrase this by saying the person who knows who God really is and who puts his trust in him will be secure. The wise father seems to be warning his son away from fanciful and idolatrous conceptions of God. Of course, it does us no good to believe in the God of our own imagination. That certainly is not going to result in security. But a person who believes in the God of the Bible, the God who is there and who speaks, is eternally secure. Hallelujah. Verse 11 seems to further develop the theme. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. So in contrast to the person who's dealing in reality, this person is trusting in something illusory. It is a delusion to believe that money makes us secure. How could it possibly do that? How could money keep you from getting cancer? How can money ensure that your children walk with the Lord? How can money improve your odds of surviving an asteroid strike? How can money make things go better for you on Judgment Day? Well, of course, it can't. I mean, money is a nice thing, but it is no strong tower. If you want real security in life and in death, you need to know the Lord. Verse 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. This is one of those proverbs that you should probably read in two translations. The NIV is a good complement here. It renders verse 12. Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. The Hebrew word there can mean bruise, break, 
crash, or ruin. So clearly the idea is that when a person is riding high and when everything is going great, it is common for him or her to manifest an arrogant spirit. But after a bruise to the ego, after a break in good fortune, after a crash of the stock market, after the ruin of a venture, there is humility. But the good news is humility can be the road that leads to honor. Falling is part of life. If you let it improve your character and deepen your faith, then you will look back upon that experience as a gift and a kindness from God. Verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. People who try to answer questions before the question has even been fully verbalized justly bear their shame. Similarly, the person who's thinking of the next thing they want to say, instead of listening to the other person, likewise shows him or herself to be a fool. Listen carefully. Respond thoughtfully, and you will be respected, even if people disagree with your position. Verse 14, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. And the point here is that mental and spiritual sickness are often harder to bear than physical sickness. A broken bone will heal in six weeks and really only hurts for 60 minutes. A broken heart, though, may last for a lifetime. Verse 15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Derek Kidner comments helpfully here. He says, those who know most know best how little they know, close quote. That's entirely true. Moderately smart people tend to think they're brilliant. Really smart people know how little they know, and they're desperate to learn more. Be like that, son the wise father saying, let your study breed humility and an eagerness to discover more. Verse 16, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. This is similar to the English proverb that reminds us that we can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. The basic idea is that acts of kindness and benevolence, well-timed and wisely conceived, can open important doors in life. Now, of course, that's not the best reason to do good works, but neither is it a factor that wise people should ignore. Should the student who gives the teacher an apple every day get the benefit of the doubt on an essay question? Probably not, but she probably does, and it isn't a sin to understand that. Verse 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. This is absolutely brilliant. If you were going to make a list of the 10 Proverbs that every 20-year-old should memorize, this would definitely be on that list. We just talked about how the, there's wisdom and understanding human psychology in terms of how other people operate. Well, it's probably even more important to understand human psychology in terms of how you operate. You are inclined to believe people who speak authentically and with passion about their own experiences. You are empathetic. You are attentive to nonverbal cues. When eyes tear up and when voices crack with emotion, your brain registers that as evidence of veracity. You should know that because people are really good liars. So good that they often convince themselves. But just because they believe their account of things doesn't mean that you should. A wise person hears both sides of a story and looks deeply into the facts and circumstances before forming an opinion. 
Taking one person's testimony at face value is the height of folly. Verse 18. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. In the Old Testament, the lot was used in certain proceedings when the truth was inaccessible through ordinary means. So we think of how lots were cast to determine who had taken the dedicated goods in the conquest of Jericho. There were no witnesses and no one was coming forward and confessing anything. So the lot was cast and Achan was identified as the culprit. Or we think, for example, of the story of Jonah, when the sailors wanted to know why God was so obviously striving against them, they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah, who confessed that the storm was caused by his sin. So the first thing we need to say is that the lot was not to be the default method for determining guilt or innocence. Verse 17 was a reminder to consult multiple witnesses before rendering a verdict. Verse 18 is addressing the situation in which there are no witnesses. How do you bring about resolution then? Well, better to cast the lot than to decide the matter by violence. That's the basic idea. Now, of course, the background assumption here is that when the lot is used correctly, it does in fact reveal God's will. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So the message here would seem to be, that we should pursue a verdict in the normal way by interviewing multiple witnesses and considering every point of view. But if the normal means are unavailable or inconclusive, then we should ask the Lord to reveal that which is hidden from us. Now, several commentators are eager to remind us here that there is no mention of lots being used in the church after the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. David Peterson for example, in his commentary on the Acts of the Apostles, says, remarking on the use of lots in Acts chapter 1, which is the last mention of this in the Bible, says, it's important to observe that there are no further examples of such decision-making in the New Testament. As those who were about to enjoy the benefits of the New Covenant, the apostles were using a practice that was sanctioned by God, but belonged to the old era. It took place before Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out in a way that signified a new kind of relationship between God and his people, close quote. I agree. That's important for us to observe. I think it would be inappropriate for a church board of elders, for example, to determine the guilty party in a dispute by casting lots. With the help of the Holy Spirit and by making diligent use of the ordinary means, they ought to be able to come to a fair and impartial verdict. The principle remains that divine guidance should be sought, but it should be sought in prayer and in the collective study of the scriptures, as opposed to being sought in the less clear methods that were available to our forebears. If I can make a somewhat crass analogy, once you have a smartphone, you don't need to be sending telegrams. However you receive divine guidance, the basic point remains the same. A godly verdict puts an end to incessant quarreling. Thanks be to God. Verse 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. The connection between verse 18 and 19 is obvious. Quarreling is clearly to be avoided. Prolonged quarreling leads to intractable divisions. Therefore, the wise leader will deal with issues fairly, justly, and promptly. Verse 20, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. 
Trumper Longman III offers a helpful comment on this verse. He says, The proverb is probably to be understood figuratively. Just as food satisfies one's physical hunger, so also words satisfy one's intellectual and spiritual hunger. Close quote. Verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. We've spoken about this before. Words have the power to heal and the power to harm. Parents, in particular, need to remember that. The last part of the proverb is less clear than the first part. The second colon seems to be saying that those who love it, which seems to refer to the tongue or to speech in general, must eat its fruit. Again, that's probably an idiom that made perfect sense to the folks who first heard it, but that is difficult for modern readers to understand. It likely means that whatever kind of speech you incline toward, the harsh, rash, explosive speech of fools or the wise, measured, carefully considered speech of the wise, will produce fruit that you will have to eat later in life. Basic idea here is you reap what you sow. Your words are like seeds. What you sow into your children, for example, when they are young, is what you will harvest and process from your children when they are old. Conduct yourself accordingly. As I mentioned earlier, beginning with verse 22, the focus in this chapter begins to shift toward wisdom in the domestic sphere. Verse 22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Amen to that. A good wife is a gift. And of course, the same could be said about a good husband. A good spouse is a great find and should be received as a blessing. Most of the unhappiest people I know have difficult marriages. If I could just say one thing to a 19-year-old person, I would say, make Jesus your Lord and Savior. If I could say two things to a 19-year-old person, then after saying that, I would say, choose your spouse very carefully. Involve your parents. Involve your pastor. Take it slow. Start as friends. Make a list of five things that are important to you. Don't just marry the prettiest girl who'll have you. Don't just marry the dreamiest boy on the football team. Think it through. Engage your brain. Listen to counsel. Seek the help and guidance of the Lord. Because after all, who you marry is the second most important decision you will make in your life. And of course, we tend to make that decision when we are least able and equipped to do so. So it will take grace to make a good choice. So parents, start praying now for the help and favor of the Lord upon your child in this process. Verse 23. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. This proverb is making an important psychological observation. It is saying that our economic reality influences our posture and even our tone of voice. Poor people have to speak as supplicants. Rich people have learned to say no. Jesus understood this perspective very well, which may be why he said in the Beatitudes, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. That's Luke 6.20. The point is that contrary to what we might think, the poor person is actually lucky in a way because his circumstances have beaten out of him most of what stands in the way of saving faith, that is, arrogance and self-reliance. The rich person, on the other hand, how unfortunate for him, because his wealth has fostered in him a rough and closed spirit, placing him a long way indeed from the narrow gate that leads to salvation. Recall that Jesus said, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's Matthew 19, 23 to 24. Old Testament and New, there is wisdom in understanding how our circumstances affect our spiritual posture. Verse 24, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This proverb explores the spectrum of human relationships. There are companions who are fair-weather friends, we might say. They're with you in the good times. But then there is also a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Of course, as New Testament believers, we can't help but hear that as an anticipation of Christ. According to Mark 3, 34 to 35, Jesus is our brother. According to John 15, 14 to 15, he is our friend. He is not merely with us like the companions in the first part of this proverb. He is for us in the manner of the second colon in the proverb. He is for us in life as he was for us in his sacrificial death. He lived for us. He died for us. He was raised for us. He reigns for us. What more could he do than that he has done? Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 